Today, as we study in Isaiah chapter 7, it's been some 16 years since um, chapter 6, uh, where we were at last week. And you remember last week, it gave us the time period and told us that, that the, uh, the vision that Isaiah had in chapter 6 was in the year that King Uzziah died. And you remember I told you that Uzziah was a very good king. It had reigned for 52 years. And the, the nation of Judah had been very prosperous and their borders had expanded. Uh, they, they were back in the heydays of the kingdom of David when David reigned and when Solomon reigned. And, and now King Uzziah has died. And then the Bible tells us that God showed Isaiah a vision of himself, or a vision of God, because <clears throat> in chapters 1 through 5, God had brought a charge against His children. And that charge was that they had forsaken the Lord, that they were no longer trusting in the Lord for um, their daily provision and for their daily security. Instead, they had uh, started turning to other gods and looking at their leaders and believing that uh, the work of their own hands and their own creations is what actually... um, made them secure and brought them their daily bread. And so, same way that many of us get to today, instead of waking up every day praying the the Lord's Prayer that says, Lord, give us this day our daily prayer, we wake up and we just get up, get our showers, we go to work, we go through our daily routine, and and basically we just want to make sure that we have good leaders in place and that we vote the right people in. And that's where our minds go to, this is where our security is. And This is where our provision comes from. And ultimately, God brought a charge against His people and said, you have actually turned your back on me and you are forsaking me and you you have just utterly turned away from the Lord your God. And Isaiah is preaching this message in in chapters 1 through 5. Well, then when he gets to chapter 6, God shows Isaiah a vision because King Uzziah dies. And Isaiah, I'm sure, is feeling the same thing. He's looking at King Uzziah and he's saying, for 52 years we've been so prosperous, this nation has been so good, and now the king is dead. And then God shows Isaiah a vision of the true king that sits on the throne. And He shows Isaiah that he is the sovereign king. He shows Isaiah that he is the the majestic king, that he is the holy king. He shows Isaiah that He is the only true king whose throne is above every other throne. And that even when the king, Uzziah, is dead, the king of kings is still on his throne. And so, what we have is that Isaiah sees the king, and then when he sees it, he understands that he himself has been trusting in all the wrong things, and that all of this that he's been preaching and charging against the nation of Judah, that he's guilty of it. And he says, woe is me, for I'm undone. And I'm of unclean lips, and I dwell of a people of unclean lips. And ultimately, Isaiah not only charged all the nation of Judah, but he charged himself with the sin of forsaking God. And when he confessed that Jesus was Lord, and when he confessed that the King, the true King, is on His throne, and that God is the true sovereign King, and when he confessed his sin, that he is undone and that he has unclean lips before this God, the Bible says that God cleansed him of that sin and he atoned for that sin and he made sacrifice for that sin and he forgave Isaiah. And then God calls Isaiah into a commission. You remember he said, 
Who shall we send and who will go? And Isaiah said, hey, here am I, Lord. Send me. I'll go. I go. I want to serve you, Lord. And he, he gives him the job. And go with me to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, as we look at the job here. And he said to Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Now think about that for a minute. Isaiah's been preaching in chapters 1 through 5 about this charge against them, right? He's been calling to repentance. He's been laying out the sin before them. And yet now he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep going back to this people. I want you to keep preaching. I want you to tell them. Keep on hearing. You've been hearing over and over again. I've been preaching and preaching. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. And then in verse 10, he says, Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. You know how he's going to do that? He's going to keep preaching, but they don't want to hear it. Right? How many people in the world today keep hearing the preaching, but they don't want to hear it? Y'all understand what I'm saying? And as a result of that, their eyes go blinder and blinder, and their ears get... get, they can hear less and less, and their hearts become more and more dull. And so, what God is telling Isaiah is keep preaching. Don't stop preaching the truth. Keep preaching. Keep telling them. And then he says here, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and actually turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? Isaiah said, Lord, how long? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is failed. The holy seed is its stump. Now let me sum that up for you real quick. How long, O oh Lord? Until judgment comes. And when judgment comes on Judah, in this context, because he's talking to the nation of Judah, when judgment comes, 90% is going to be wiped out. I'm not going to completely destroy it. Now remember... Jesus, the Messiah, is coming from the house of David, from Judah, right? Here's another thing that you need to keep in mind as we study this. At this time, the nation of Israel is divided into two nations, if you will. You have the northern tribes of the nation of Israel. Sometimes it's called Ephraim. So when we read Ephraim in chapter 7, he's talking about the northern tribes of Israel. They have already turned away from God They have already left Him. There is pretty much no hope for them. They are going to be destroyed. And you're going to see that in chapter 7. The southern tribes are the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And they dwell in Jerusalem. The northern tribes are the ten tribes, Ephraim, Manasseh, all the other tribes. And they dwell in Samaria. So you've got... The Samarias that are up here in the capital of the northern tribes, and you've got Judah that's down south in the capital in Jerusalem of the southern tribes, all right? And so what you've got here, and this is where you get into some some, uh, New Testament understanding. You remember how the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other in the New Testament? You remember when Jesus had to go through Samaria and... He stopped by the well and the Samaritan woman came to the well and she said, um, 
He said, hey, give me something to drink. She stepped back. She said, wait a minute. You're a Jew. How is it that you being a Jew ask of me, a Samaritan, to give you something to drink? In other words, Jews won't even touch things that Samaritans touch. You know why that is? Because when they separated into two kingdoms, the Samaritans, when God destroyed Israel, He brought Assyria in and He mixed up the people there and the Jewish people mixed up with all of the other unholy gods and, and nations of the earth. All right? Now, we're not talking about interracial marriage here. We're talking about different gods coming together. All right? The southern side, on the other hand, remained true to, to God. And so they remained Jews, if you will, and they didn't mix with other gods of other nations and things for the most part. And so by the time we move over into the New Testament, you still got it separated, only it's separated into Samaritans and it's Samaritan into Jews. And they can't stand each other because the Jews look at the Samaritans as an unholy people, and the Samaritans look at the Jews and say, we're the holy people because we're the ones that worship on this mountain, and you guys say you worship over here in Jerusalem. That's where you get into that context, all right? So is everybody tracking with me so far? So what you have here is you got Isaiah preaching to the southern tribes of Judah in Jerusalem. And he says to them, 90% of this nation in the southern tribes are going to be wiped out and only 10% are going to remain. But that hasn't come yet. Isaiah is preaching it. And for 16 years, between chapter 6 and chapter 7, Isaiah is doing exactly what God told him to do. He's making the heart of this people dull. He's blinding their eyes. He's shutting their ears. How's he doing it? He's preaching the truth over and over again, and their heart is growing harder and harder and harder to the point that we move 16 years later into chapter 7. Chapter 7, we have a new king that steps up. This king's name is Ahaz. And King Ahaz is an evil king. He is the grandson of Uzziah, who was a good king. But again... 16 years pass by and Ahaz is reigning in Judah and he does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Just for context, go with me for, to 2 Kings chapter 16 and we're going to read verses 2 through 4. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now again, Israel being the northern tribes that have already turned away from God. They're already following other gods. They're already... Now Ahaz is turning and following this path. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. You seeing what kind of king this is so far? A man that will burn his own son for a sacrifice to a false god? And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. In other words, Ahaz was a terrible king. He did not do good. Now, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 7 with me and start in verse 1, we're going to see first and foremost the situation. This is where we're moving through our outline. Verses 1 through 3, we have the situation. So here's what's happening. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, in other words, the grandson of Uzziah, the king of Judah, 
Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So here's the situation. Syria is one power in this world. Not a superpower, but a pretty powerful nation. Then you've got the ten tribes of Israel. That is also a powerful nation. These two come together and they are going to decide that they are going to overthrow and conquer Judah and they're going to take Ahaz out of the picture. They are against the house of David. Now what I mean by that is Judah was the house of David. This is where the Messiah was going to come from, okay? They did not want the house of David. They wanted their own king. The nation separated when David and Solomon, when Solomon died, the nations didn't want to follow the Davidic line anymore of kings. And this is the main reason they separated. So the northern tribes raised up their own king because they didn't want to follow the house of David. The southern tribes stayed true to the house of David. And as a result of that, they have been enemies. Now, Syria and Israel have come together and their kings have said, we're going to go down here and conquer the house of David and we're going to set up our own king. And you can see that in chapter 7, verse 6. Go over to verse 6 with me for just a minute and then we'll come back to verse 1. He says, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tebel as king in the midst of it. And so this is what they're saying. We want to set up our own king. All right. And so this is the situation. So go back with me to verse 2 of um, chapter 7. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, and who did I tell you Ephraim was? Israel, right? The northern tribe. So when the house of David, which is Judah and Ahaz, when they're told that Syria and Israel have teamed together, they've joined a confederacy, when they come together, and they're going to mount an attack against you, look what happens. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Do you see the image that he's trying to portray to you? How scared are Ahaz and this nation? They are horrified. They are trembling at what's fixing to come against them. Now remember, the house of David is where the Messiah is coming from. If the house of David is destroyed, what happens to the promise of God? Non-existent. So the house of David cannot be destroyed. Ahaz, even though he's evil, is still the lineage of this. This is still the plan that is going to happen. But right now, the plan is in trouble. Trouble has come on the scene. They're facing trouble and they got to figure out how to face this trouble. And so now, keep going with me. In verse 3, and the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Sher Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And basically, here's what you need to understand. Ahaz is going out to fortify his water to make sure that because battle's coming, he's running around trying to figure out how do I prepare to get ready to protect ourselves for the trouble that's coming. And he's panicking. And he's doing things that is not good. And, and God is trying to steer him the right way, even though he's an evil king. He's trying to teach him 
how to face the trouble that comes his way. And notice what he does next in verses 4 through 9. We have God's direction for him. This is how God teaches him to face the trouble. And here's what you say to him, Isaiah. First off, be careful. Be careful. Take heed is what some of your versions say. Now I want you to to, um, have a better explanation of this. So go with me to Isaiah chapter 8 and look at verse 11 and 12 for a little bit more context to see what he means by be careful. Remember, he's running around trying to figure out how he's going to fix this trouble. How's he going to fix this problem? And ain't that what we do when trouble comes our way? How am I going to fix this? What am I going to do about this? That's the first thing we do, is start making decisions, and most of the time they're bad. And look what he's doing. In verse 11 of chapter 8, For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now some of your versions, which I believe is a more correct translation, actually says, do not say a confederacy, a confederacy. In other words, the people were running around and they were saying, we need to join up with another army the way that they're joining up so that we can conquer them. There is a superpower in the land at this time named Assyria. Now there's a difference between Syria and Assyria, alright? The superpower in the world is Assyria. And Assyria makes Syria and northern Israel look like sissies. I mean, they are nothing in comparison whatsoever. The people are trying to talk Ahaz into going and making an alliance, and we'll read about this in a little while, to go and make an alliance with Assyria. God steps in and says, Be careful, Ahaz. Don't follow the advice of the people. Don't do what the people said. Don't fear the way that they fear. Don't be in dread the way that they are dread. Don't say, let's start a confederacy. Let's start a confederacy. That is the first thing you do. And so when I studied this, the first thing I thought of is when we face trouble in our life, we have to first and foremost be very careful. When trouble is coming your way, the first thing that we want to do is figure out a human approach to it, right? The first thing we do is listen to counsel around us that is usually of the world. Matter of fact, many of us, the first thing we do is get on the phones or get on the text or get on the Facebook and start seeking the counsel of the world before we seek the counsel of God. And the first thing that Isaiah tells or that God tells Ahaz through Isaiah is when you're facing trouble that makes you shake like, like trees in a forest wind, when you're facing that kind of trouble, the first thing you need to do is take heed. Be careful. Slow down. Don't panic. Stop. Don't listen to the counsel of the world. Don't try to come up with your own solution to the problem. Just be careful in how you approach this. And then the next thing he says, look what he says in chapter 7, verse 4. Be careful. And then be quiet. You know, here's a trouble for us. We're not usually quiet people, right? Most of the time when trouble comes our way, like I told you before, the first thing we do is we get on the phone and start building our army. Amen? 
We get on the text message and start going to war. We get on Facebook and start airing it out. And here God says that the next thing you need to do, the first thing is be careful in the approach you're going to take. The second thing you do, be quiet. Calm yourself down. Be quiet. Settle down. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Did y'all hear that? When words are many, transgression is not lacking. I can't tell you how many times, whenever, especially when something angers me or my wife or somebody, that the first reaction is usually, I want to start doing this right here in some way. Or I want to respond in some way. If I feel like I've been attacked by something, I want to get on here and, and, or, and my wife is very bad about wanting to do that and I'll have to stop and I'll have to say, okay, listen, here's the way we approach this. Sometimes the best thing to do is not to say anything at all. Sometimes the best thing to do is just be quiet. Just keep your mouth shut. Because where words are many, transgression is not lacking. But notice what it says next. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent, is wise. A wise person knows when to just keep their mouth shut. And if you don't want to end up in sin and making things worse than it already is, the best approach to trouble when it comes in your life is to be quiet. Be careful and be quiet. And then, look, look, look what he says next in um, verse 4. Do not fear. Do not let fear... Remember, Ahaz is running around and Ahaz is trying to figure out and he's already made up his mind what he's going to do. Look with me at 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 5-9. through 9, And you're going to see the story. Same story, just from a different perspective. Then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remelia, the, the king of Israel came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz but could not conquer him. All right, So this is telling you the story. But, and look what's going on in uh, Ahaz's head here. At that time, Rezin the king of Syria recovered Elath from Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came from Elath where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of where? Assyria saying, I am your servant, I am your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. Now I want you to think about what's happening here. We're reading it from after Ahaz already makes his decision how he's going to respond. So you already know Ahaz is going to make a bad decision, right? But God is trying to warn Ahaz before he does it. And he says, Ahaz, be careful. I know all the people are telling you, go up and make a a confederacy with the king of Assyria. But take heed, be careful. Don't walk the way they're walking. They're not being quiet. They're not walking in patience. They're not trusting the Lord. They are walking in fear. And here he steps up and he says, Ahaz, don't respond to your trouble in fear. Let me tell you something. When you live in fear, you make stupid decisions. When when fear is what is controlling you in your trouble that you're facing, the decisions that you make are usually not wise decisions, right? And so here 
He's just telling Ahaz, Ahaz, be careful, take heed, slow down, calm down. Don't let your mouth start running and don't start using your own ideas and the counsel of the world and how you're going to approach this trouble. But instead, be careful, be quiet, take some time, get rid of the fear, put your trust back in God, calm yourself, and if you will do this, then everything's going to be okay because the Lord is going to fight for you. Look with me at 2 Timothy, I think it is. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I may not have gave this one to him. But he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now when we go back and we read those verses, what you find out is that Timothy was a very young pastor in this place. And Paul is writing to him because Timothy has become a little timid. And he's become a little ashamed of the gift that he's given him. And, God, and Paul tells Timothy, through the Spirit of God, he says, Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit of fear. Right now, the way you're responding to your anxiety and the way you're responding to the, the feelings that you're feeling, you're responding out of fear. God has not given His children a spirit of fear. But God has given His children a spirit of power a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-control. You know what that means? Self-control means that you don't have to let fear control you. Now, do we let fear control us many times? Absolutely. But He's given us a spirit of self-control. And so we can stop in our fear and make a decision to say, I'm going to stop responding out of this fear. I'm going to stop living in this fear and I'm going to start trusting in the Lord. And I'm going to be self-controlled in this trouble that I'm facing. And so we see that he tells them again in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4, you got to be careful. you got to be quiet. you got to not live in fear. And then finally he says, don't lose heart. Don't let your heart be faint. In other words, don't let the trouble come into your life to the point that it removes all hope out of your heart. And how many times have we seen trouble come into our life and literally hope just goes away and our heart just fails us and we become down so that there is no hope and there is nothing to to do. There's, There's just no encouragement at all. And ultimately he says, don't let your heart grow faint. He says, make sure that you continue to have this hope in your heart because even though trouble may cause some damage, And don't trouble cause damage. You better believe it. Don't wind do damage to trees in a forest? Absolutely. It does damage. But in the end, God promises the victory. I want you to uh, look with me at um, John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says this. He says, I have spoken these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then He says, in the world you will have peace tribulation. Some versions translate that trouble. Now think about this for a second. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Right? So we're going to have a choice here. You can have peace in Jesus. Now in the world, which is where we are right now, you're going to have what? Trouble. He did not promise you 
that you're not going to have trouble in this world. Just the opposite. He said, in this world, you are going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. But, does He tell you in the midst of trouble to lose heart? What does He tell you to do? Take heart. We don't lose heart, we take it. We don't lose hope, we take hope. He says, in the midst of trouble, we take heart. How do we take heart? By knowing that He has overcome the world. What does He mean by that? There is no trouble that He has not overcome that we will not see the victory in. There is no darkness that we will face that will hurt us in this world and cause damage that He has not already overcome and promises us the victory in the end. And so when the trouble comes, He promises us that you don't have to lose heart. The the exact opposite is true. You can actually take heart. Why? Because He's overcome the world. And He promises us the victory. That in this world, you will have trouble. See, trouble is inevitable. See, we have preachers today and um, many of them today that will come out and they'll preach that um, God is all about your prosperity and that God is all about nothing for your good and that if if things don't happen in your prayer life, it's just because you don't have enough faith. And um, if you don't get your healing, it's because because you didn't have enough faith to believe. Let me tell you something. God never promised that. God never promised that. God promised you that in this world there will be trouble. But He promised you that in Jesus you can have peace in the midst of the trouble. In Jesus you can take heart in the midst of the trouble because you know that He has already provided the evidence and the sign that you need to believe that He has overcome the world. He has overcome the ultimate enemy, which is death. And when He can overcome death, is there any darkness that He cannot overcome? None. And so we are able to take heart. We are able to have hope within our heart because Jesus has overcome this world. And so, go back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4 again. He tells Ahaz, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. But instead, take heart. Take heart. Trust the Lord your God. And he says, don't do it because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. And then basically he's talking about they're soon to be destroyed. They're just smoldering stumps is all they are. Syria and Israel both, they are on their way to doom and destruction. And they were. Alright? And so then he goes on in verse 5. He says, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remelia has devised evil against you, saying... Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves. And set up the son of Tabel as king in the midst of it. Remember, they didn't want the son of David. They didn't want the house of David. We want to destroy the house of David. And ultimately, when you say you want to destroy the house of David, you know what you're saying? I want to destroy the Messiah. This is an antichrist spirit that's at work in the nation of Israel at this point. And so he says here in verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. You see that? Now again, is God doing this because of Ahaz? 
Ahaz is an evil king. He's a terrible king. The truth of the matter has, is Ahaz and probably the majority of Judah deserves to be destroyed. But the issue is this. The promise of God is at stake. If the house of David is destroyed, the promise of God is destroyed. And so God says here very plainly, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to stand. It shall not come to pass. Verse 8, He says, For the head of Syria is Damascus. That's their capital. Capital. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. That's their king. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Who was Ephraim? Israel. In 65 years from now, Israel is not even going to be a people anymore. And ain't that the truth? They were Samaritans. They weren't Jews anymore. They were such a mixed up group of people that they weren't even recognized as the people of God anymore. And then in verse 9, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. How do we respond to trouble? How do we deal with darkness that comes in our life? We respond firm in faith. Firm in faith that God has promised us that we don't have to lose heart in the midst of trouble. We can take heart in the midst of trouble. Where? In Jesus. That's the only place. Why? Because He has overcome the world. And all those that are in Him also will have the same victory in whatever trouble we face. We will have the trouble here in this life, but in Him, we will have the victory. That is the promise. Now again, this is why it's important. There are many people today that would preach to you that we need to be following God and we need to be trusting in God because He's going to save us from all our trouble in the world right now. No. When Jesus came, did He heal a bunch of people? Absolutely. But did He heal everybody? No. You know, when He went to the pool of Bethsaida, I believe it was, and the the lame man kept trying to get down into the water. You remember that? And Jesus came to him and said, do you want to be healed? He said, yeah, but every time the water is stirred, I try to get down into the water and somebody gets in front of me and goes before me and I, I can't get down there. And Jesus said, that's not what I ask you. Do you want to be healed? He said, yeah, I want to be healed. He said, well, get up and, and take up your bed and walk. And the man got up and he walked away. But how many other people were at that pool? Why didn't he heal all of them? Because Jesus did not come the first time to give you the full redemption. He came to purchase it and to prove that he was the one that was the one to purchase it. And so he came to show you that he had power over all sickness, that He had power over all disease, that He had power over all darkness. And one day when He comes back, He will give you the fullness of redemption. The first time He came, He purchased it. And now we should pray for healing and we should pray that we get to experience some of the first fruits of those sicknesses. And will some people be healed? Absolutely. But... There is going to come a time when there is going to come sickness or old age upon you that this mortal body has to put on immortality. You understand that, right? And so in this world, we will face trouble. Period. And we pray through that trouble. 
and we be careful in the way that we approach that trouble. And we don't listen to the counsel of the world. And, and we don't use our own means and our own strengths and our own abilities to try to address this trouble. You know, last Sunday we were up here, and you know i got to mention this, we were up here talking about how bad, how dry it was. And, and basically how I was getting ready to sell pets. I was getting ready to sell cows so that, uh, so that I didn't have to feed them hay. And we were up here and a man stood up in the back and said, please pray for rain. I mean, it's getting, it, it, he was the same way. I mean, it was just getting terrible. And we were up here and we were just talking about how bad it was. And, um, and then later that night, did anybody notice what happened? To over two inches of rain. And I, I, I thank God for sending it to Anel, but Anel showed me a, a post where the Tennessee Valley Weather Authority put up uh, that said um, Pulaski won the lottery jackpot for rain in all of Tennessee. Pulaski won the lottery jackpot for rain in all of Tennessee. It was the only major rain in all of Tennessee on little old Pulaski. And I was telling you last Sunday in my sermon how I had been trying to come up with my own approach. Y'all remember that? My own approach with how I'm going to irrigate this field and how I'm going to fix this, and yet your pastor had not yet gone to God for rain. And what did we do that morning? And do you know that every day this week, not a single day have I failed at my house to have at least two major rains every day to the point that I've already cut my yard once this week and I will probably have to cut it again this weekend or, or here in just a day or so to the point that I'm looking out this morning and when I walk out, my cows are all laying out in the grass chewing their cud, not grazing around everywhere. And you know what that is a sign of when cows are sitting there chewing their cud? Happy, satisfied cows. And I mean, I got green grass coming up everywhere. Everywhere. Now, am I telling you that God is always going... Am I telling you that that's what's always going to happen? No. But do you really think that's coincidence? That's exactly right. And I'm sitting here this morning and I'm telling you that this very next chapter, God is telling us how we respond to troubles in our life of any kind. Because trouble is inevitable. In this world, you will face trouble. And here He says very plainly, be careful how you do it. Don't start trying to figure out your own way to fix this thing. Don't start trying to, uh, to, to team up and figure out what am I going to buy and how am I going to do this and how am I going to do that. The first thing you do is stop and go to your Lord. And you remember what the Bible said in James chapter 1, I think it's verse 7 maybe, He said, if any of you lack wisdom in anything, what should you do? Ask for it. And if you lack it and you ask for it, God gives it to all generously who ask. But let him ask in faith, not being double-minded. Don't let that man suppose that God will give him anything. But if you ask in faith for wisdom in a situation, then you trust that God is going to provide that wisdom. And out of that wisdom, you be quiet. Be quiet. Don't let that mouth start running. Don't get on face. Don't start doing all the things that the world would have you do. You be quiet. And you be calm. 
You don't let fear run you. You walk in faith and you walk in trust and you walk in assurance that God has got this one way or the other. One way or the other, God has got this and the victory will be mine. And you don't let your heart fail. You don't lose heart. But instead, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer and take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Take heart. Take heart in the midst of your trouble. I got so much more I want to preach to you this morning. How about we save it for next week? Can we do that? Because God gives a sign. God gives a sign that He's going to do what He promised He'll do. And I want to talk about that sign next week. But I'll end this week just simply by saying this. When trouble comes your way, and it's coming. How many of you know trouble's, trouble's coming? If you ain't facing it already, trouble's coming. And when trouble comes, the question is, how should a Christian face it? Because there's a good way to face it, and there's an evil way to face it. And the good way to face it will be to be careful how you approach it. Seek God for the wisdom you need for how to approach it. Trust that He gives you this wisdom. Be quiet, because in the abundance of words is many transgressions, but the, the, the lips of the wise are are closed. Be quiet. Don't let fear control you. And take heart knowing that no matter what happens, no matter what damage it causes, no matter what tears it brings, the victory is still mine because I'm in Jesus and He has overcome this world. Amen.